Parenting young children can provide plenty of humorous moments. For anyone who is a parent here can attest. One recent humorous moment took place when, uh, I think it was about a couple months ago, I took Peter, our two-year-old, to the park to play. I was sitting on a bench across the playground from him, just keeping an eye on him, making sure everything's okay as he just let loose a whole bunch of energy, just running and climbing and swinging and bouncing and and just climbing everything he could. Turns out, one time, he went up there, and he disappeared for a minute, and he had found a dime. It's like a 10-cent coin. I was up there, and he disappeared. I, it was really quiet. I was wondering what was going on, and it turned out he was just examining his treasure. He reemerged a minute later, flying out the bottom of a slide, and I'm not exaggerating at all. Okay, This was his reaction as he came out of the slide, he put both hands on the coin, bent over, all excited, and let out a scream, money! (laughs) When I stopped laughing, (laughs) I thought, where in the world did he learn that? (laughs) We just sure didn't teach him that. Like, what did a two-year-old care about money so much and you know those moments that make you question your parenting (laughs) that was one of them (laughs) sometimes though I wonder if we have ever if some of us have ever grown out of this childish response to money not not much in life makes us more excited than unexpected money right finding a Finding 20 bucks on the ground, getting a larger paycheck than you expected, getting a raise, maybe getting a generous birthday gift or a hefty tax return. Nothing makes us more, not much at least, makes us more excited than money. On the other hand, not much makes us more sensitive than money either. And as soon as you heard that I'm talking about money this morning. A lot of you probably got a little bit nervous and shifting in your seats. I'll tell you, I'll let you know a little secret. Preaching about money also makes preachers nervous, okay? But why are we so sensitive or touchy when it comes to money? Do you think it's because maybe we love it so much? I think maybe so. We are thoroughly attached to our money, even idolatrous of it. I also think that we've developed a lot of underlying guilt when it comes to money. We feel guilty about our money or how we use our money. And that tends to come out when we talk about it. We get overly sensitive. And if we end up feeling guilty, not much makes us more offended than money. However, Jesus talks a lot about money and possessions when he was on earth, and hence it is important that we do so as well. Did you know that in scripture, Jesus actually talks about money ten times more than he talks about sexual sins? Ten times more. The the way we handle money and possessions is extremely important to Jesus. Money isn't inherently evil, 
but it is insidiously dangerous. And we need to be warned about it. So let, let me start today by saying that my goal is not to try to make you feel guilty this morning, okay? That's not my goal. And if you do end up feeling guilty or uncomfortable or uneasy, I hope you'll see that God doesn't want you to stay there, okay? He brings conviction sometimes, but he doesn't want us to stay in that. Whenever we feel guilt, we have to move on to see God's mercy and grace and forgiveness, as well as his power that he gives us to live lives of generosity and freedom. So I encourage you, if you feel guilty at all, repent of the sin and move on. See God's grace, okay? Let's turn together in Scripture to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, if you have one of the pew Bibles from the pews in front of you, it's on page 875. 875, Luke chapter 16. The last couple weeks, we've looked at some of Jesus' most well-known and well-loved parables, which were short fictional stories that made powerful spiritual points. This week, we're going to look at what is possibly Jesus' most perplexing parable. Okay? But before we read this fun one, let's pray that God will help us understand and apply it first, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that you, by your spirit, would be working in our hearts that you would bring conviction where it is needed, that you'd encourage us where we need encouragement. Help build up our faith today, God, as we look in your word. We need your grace. We need your love. We need your forgiveness. And help us, above everything else, to exalt you in our lives, put you first and foremost, and worship only you today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we start chapter 16, like chapter 15, Jesus was apparently still in a storytelling mood. But the very first verse we read today tells us that Jesus started talking once again to his disciples. So people who were committed to following Jesus and living for him. He had been talking to sinners and Pharisees and all these other people. Now he turns back to his disciples. And I know that most of you in this room today would identify yourself as a disciple of Jesus. This is what you would hope that you are. You're a disciple. And whether or not that's true, if you believe you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is speaking to you this morning. Okay? In these words, through these words. Listen up to what he says. We're going to go ahead and read through this confusing parable in its entirety, and then we'll discuss it. Okay? Starting in verse 1, Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. 
Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. End of parable. Interesting, isn't it? So what's happening in this story? So there's this rich man, and I think you probably got the gist of the story. This rich man who has enough riches to need someone to manage them. So he hires this guy to basically run his estate, to look after all that he's, all he owns, all his wealth. So any money flowing in and out of the estate, any financial dealings, any food or drink or supplies that needed bought or sold, any tools or equipment, buildings or land that required upkeep. This manager was given a lot of responsibility over this rich man's house. He was responsible for keeping his employer's dealings on the up and up, for maintaining the financial books, for making sure everything balanced, for keeping everything on the estate just humming along nicely like a well-oiled machine. But one day, the rich man hears that his manager wasn't so trustworthy as he thought. And it said in verse 1, there was a rich man who had a manager, and, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. They aren't given specifics of how the manager was wasting his employer's possessions. But the word for wasting is actually the same word that was used in the previous chapter when Jesus talked about the prodigal son. Remember when the prodigal son went away and squandered his inheritance? Same word. He was wasting his possessions. Perhaps the manager was embezzling funds, skimming off the top a bit. Maybe he was being wasteful in his use of products or supplies. Maybe he was just fudging numbers in the books for personal gain, whatever reason. Maybe he was merely making dumb decisions as a manager. The bottom line was that the estate's bottom line just kept dwindling. And dropping. And this manager was responsible for it. He was to blame. And when he found out, when he was found out, his boss immediately called for an audit. Basically. Verse 2. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So basically, give me a full account of what's been going on. And oh, by the way, you're fired. You got 24 hours or a week or some amount of time, short amount of time, short notice until he would be out on the streets looking for work. Okay? So the manager starts thinking through his options. What can I do? I'm going to lose my job. Verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. So this tells you he was a white collar worker through and through. He was used to desk jobs. Right? Managing people, overseeing them, bookkeeping, this type of work. He wasn't cut out for blue-collar physical labor, like digging on a construction crew. This would be like today if you imagine a high-level executive gets let go from his job and he needs to find work. But he probably, after many years of working in this industry, he would not be fit to apply for jobs in road work or home construction. But if his name was sullied from the job he lost, he would also have a hard time finding work in his own field, too. 
So this man wasn't able to do hard physical labor, and he also wasn't willing to beg. Did you see that? It says, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. That's understandable, right? Most people have much more pride than that. If you lost your job today, your first choice would not be out to go out and panhandle tomorrow, right? But basically what he's saying is there, there's nowhere for him to go once he loses his job. Doesn't know what to do. So with his termination looming, the manager quickly devised a plan. And this plan is pretty crafty, yet also pretty shady. It said in verse 4, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he hoped to preserve at least a bit of reputation and respect and in the community. That way, at least, maybe he'd have a few friends that would be willing to have him into their houses if he needed to stay. Or maybe even one of them would be willing to hire him as a manager of their house. Okay, so here's what he did. Verse 5. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, and how, sorry, I lost my place. said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now, no matter what he had done before, this was pure fraud. He was essentially stealing profits that were rightfully his bosses. It wasn't taking them for himself, but he was twisting them towards his own personal ends, his own personal gain. Now, he called his master's debtors in, it looks like all of them, one by one in order to reduce their debt. So someone who owed 100 measures of oil, he said, hey, quick, quick, take your bill, scratch out that 100, erase it, put 50 down, okay? No one will be the wiser. I'll sign it off and everything. Now, by the way, that would have been a ton of of oil. Okay, that was the equivalent of 3,200 liters. Someone else owed 100 measures or 1,000 bushels of wheat. These debts were about a year's worth of someone's wages. So these were significant debts that were being slashed drastically. Imagine, I mean, if you had... Say you owed someone $50,000, and someone came to you and said, I represent your debtor, but what I want you to do is just take that $50,000, cross it out, put $25,000 down. Okay? That'd make you pretty happy, right? Say someone does that to your mortgage. Just slash it, the bank calls and slashes a huge chunk off your mortgage. Be awesome. Then the, the debtors probably had no idea that something fishy was going on. As far as they knew, the manager was working with his master's full authorization. Yeah, he, was, he had this authority. Legally, he did. He wasn't fired yet. Okay, he had his notice, but these bills that he signed would be legal and binding. Okay? Now, his goal, of course, was that by reducing the debts of his boss, he'd increase their debt to him. That was his goal. He was indebting others to himself, obviously making them like him a lot. This would be someone they'd look upon favorably. They have left saying, 
That is so generous. Thank you. I owe you one. And the manager would be thinking, yes, <laughs> you do owe me one. <laughs> Sly? Yeah. Devious? For sure. Crooked? Absolutely. But also pretty brilliant, wouldn't you say? And that leads to the ultra-confusing conclusion of the parable. In verse 8, we just have a simple sentence, and it says this, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Wait, what? (laughs) He commended him? The manager was a greedy, unethical, and deceptive manager. Dishonest. He's even called the dishonest manager in this parable. His boss would have undoubtedly been furious when he heard what he had done, when he figured out what he did. So why, in heaven's name, would he commend him for being so shrewd? Why would he compliment the scoundrel who ripped him off? Well, as T.W. Manson says, there is a legitimate difference between saying, I applaud the clever manager because he acted dishonestly, and saying, I applaud the dishonest manager because he acted Cleverly. Get that difference? D.A. Carson also says, This cannot mean that Jesus advocates unscrupulous business practices. The point is that the manager used the resources under his control to prepare for his own future. And that is what he is being commended for. So his actions may have been corrupt and dishonest, ultimately morally wrong. Okay, what he did was wrong. But... They were also smart, at least for his personal sake. It was a shrewd plan, and the rich man was only commending his shrewdness. That's it. Okay? I imagine the situation was something like, he gets wind of what ha- went on. You did what with the debts that are owed me? What did you do? I have to tip my cap to you. You're still fired. Get out of here. Right? It's a confusing parable. But ultimately, it's got only one fairly simple point. Okay? The manager was wise in the way he looked after his own future. That's the point. He was wise in the way he looked after his own future. And Jesus likewise wanted his followers to be shrewd in the way that we look after our future. Okay? How do I know this? How do I know this is what Jesus is getting at? Because of what he says next. Okay, in verse 8, it says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of of light. Now, the dishonest manager clearly is an example of the sons of this world. Okay? He's not an example of the godly person. But Jesus is like, see that guy? See that worldly manager? He's got one exemplary quality. He shrewdly looks after his future. But my followers often don't. That's what he says. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. 
the sons of the world are shrewd, how much more should the sons of light be? In case the word shrewd seems to have some negative connotations to you, here the word simply means wise. It's what it means. It's the same word is used to describe the wise man who built his house on the rock. Okay? He was wise in looking after his future too. And Jesus says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now that may be confusing to you as well, but we'll look at that more in a minute. First, here's the main point of this parable. Really, the point of the entire passage is this. We must wisely use our wealth for eternal purposes. As followers of Jesus, we must shrewdly and wisely use our worldly wealth for eternal purposes. That's the point. You'll recognize the Greek word for unrighteous wealth that Jesus uses here. It's mammon. Okay? Mammon was the word that the people of his day used to describe both money and possessions combined. So everything that you own here on earth, whether money or possessions, is mammon or physical wealth. Okay? The theme of this passage is finances. The point is to be wise with them in light of eternity. And Jesus says his followers need to wise up when it comes to wealth. Okay? The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. But I'm afraid that Jesus' criticism can all too often hold true. Christians are often no more wise with our mammon than anyone else in the world. Andrew Wilson says that wisdom throughout the Bible involves living in the present in light of the future. But many believers hardly put any thought into their future. It's going to happen in the future. Maybe, I mean, there's so many reasons it could be. Maybe because of greed or fear, apathy, selfishness, whatever the case may be. But we don't put much thought what's to come down the road. If you if you've got no budget whatsoever for your finances, that's an issue. If you you rack up huge debt loads, crippling your flexibility, that's definitely not being shrewd. If you never have enough to give to God or give to the needy. That's a huge spiritual issue. It's time that many of us actually put some time and thought and action into fixing our finances. It's a biblical issue. Okay? All of us, we need new budgets. We need new discipline. We need new priorities when it comes to our wealth. And verse 9 
is crucial to this point, but it also can be really confusing. We read it a couple times already. Jesus says, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, on first read, it looks like Jesus is saying, Use your money to make friends. Right? That does not sound like something Jesus would say, does it? It's weird. Use your money to make friends. Buy friends? What? But notice, these are not any ordinary friends. It says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So we're to make friends who may receive us into eternal dwellings. So, another question. Does this mean the friends that I make now can help me in heaven? Say, for example, okay, I'll, I'll use Pastor Bob. And I call him Pastor Bob. You can too, even though he refuses, okay? <laughs> Let's say I think, okay, Pastor Bob would be a good friend to have in heaven one day. Right? He's going to have a nice mansion, lots of riches, and I want him to be my friend. Okay? So let's say I go up to him today and say, Pastor Bob, I'd like you to come to my house for dinner. And when he gets there, I just throw a huge party. Okay? I pull out all the stops. I spend all kinds of money to make this an awesome party that he'll enjoy. I want him to be impressed, and I want him to be my friend. I want him to like me. Then I make a habit of this, that I, I take him and his family out to eat, and I foot the bill myself, and I love doing so, and I want him to be impressed, and I buy them lots of gifts. Say every Christmas and birthday and anniversary, I'm just giving them and, and giving them. And meanwhile, I think, after all this, after all I did for him, I hope he lets me hang out at his mansion. <laughs> hope one day that he'll, he'll reward me in that way. Is that what Jesus is saying to do here? That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? But no. That is not what Jesus wants us to do. Jesus was actually just continuing the metaphor that was, exi- that was there in the parable. Okay, Remember how in verse 4, the, man, the dishonest manager bought himself friends. That's what he did. By using his master's wealth, he bought himself friends for his future. In verse 4, he said, I decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Okay? So in verse 9, it's the same metaphor. Jesus was simply saying, buy friends, metaphor, that will reward you in eternity. But what friends can reward you in eternity? Pastor Bob, can I? Can the other people here, can, can your friends reward you in eternity? No. Uh, is Jesus maybe speaking of angels or saints or, or someone that can help you out in heaven? No. Only God has the power to receive us into heaven, and to reward us there. Only God. So basically, we should use our wealth to make God our friend 
now, what Jesus is saying. Now, does this mean that we can somehow buy our salvation? That we can pay our way into heaven? Absolutely not. We are saved only by God's grace alone, through faith alone. But we've seen this time and time again with Jesus consistently teaching that those who already are saved, those who are going to heaven, will be rewarded in heaven to different extents based on how we live our lives now. That's a consistent theme of Jesus. The parallels for us with the dishonest manager are threefold. Number one, our time is running out. His termination was quickly approaching. So are our deaths. Our time is running out. Two, our money will fail, guaranteed. Did you see that? In verse 9, it says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, not if, when it fails, they they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Okay? Number three, the way we use our wealth now can affect the future. Stephen Um says the point here is that it would be unimaginably irresponsible not to plan for our future. Jesus really just wanted his disciples to regain proper perspective on their lives. Get the right perspective. Andrew Wilson uses a great illustration. I'm going to try to use it as well. I need two volunteers, and I spoke to you beforehand. Uh, Jaleel and Chris, I need you to come on up here. I think this illustrates what Jesus is doing well. Chris, I'm going to have you stand over here, up on the stage here. And Jaleel, you come with me over here. And you stand up here at the table. Okay. So, I'm over here on this other side of Jaleel. And from my perspective right here, where I am... Jaleel is very large and seems significant and important, okay? In fact, she looks actually much larger than Chris does over there, from my perspective. In fact, if I move myself right, I can actually completely block Chris from my view, right? I can't see him at all. Now, is it, what I'm really doing, though, with that is I'm messing with my perspective, it's the same thing we do when we, you know, hold, pretend we're holding the moon in our fingers or we block the sun with our hands, okay? Is Jaleel actually more significant, more larger than Chris is? No. But does she appear that way from where I am? Absolutely. She appears to be much larger, much more significant, much, uh, much more important. Sorry. I should have warned you I'm going to insult you when you come up here. (laughs) Now, Jaleel, she's she's much closer, and because of that, she seems more important. In this analogy here, in this picture, Jaleel represents the money and the life that I have now. Okay? Meanwhile, Chris is so far away that he seems rather insignificant. He's not important. It doesn't seem very pressing. Well, Jaleel seems huge and, and important and pressing. Okay? In fact, I'm not, because this is so important, I'm not worried about Chris at all. 
Okay, he's so far off, I'm not worried about him. But what wisdom involves, okay, what Jesus is doing in this parable. Come on over here. Okay, stand right here, Chris, come on down here. Okay, what Jesus is doing is putting these two things together and comparing them and saying, look at your life now, look at eternity, and see what is actually more important. What's more significant? It's what he's putting these things together. He obviously, when they're next to each other, you can see which one is larger. You have the right perspective. And, and Jesus was saying, your life now, sorry, this is going to hurt, <laughs> is actually very short. <laughs> very small. Very insignificant. Meanwhile, your future is hugely significant. It will go on forever. It will last eternally, infinitely more important. And if you're wise, you'll compare the two, and you'll make decisions in this based on that. You understand what Jesus is doing? Hey, thank you very much. Give him a round of applause. <laughs> Eternity is the big deal. Okay? We've got to be living with eternity in mind. We've got to get the right perspective. Wilson concludes his illustration by saying this. He says, what most of you don't realize is the life you have now is nearly over. And the money you currently have is not really yours anyway. And the life to come is infinitely longer and more lasting and more valuable than the things you're in now. And therefore, you should use your money now with a view to your eternal future rather than your very temporary present. Get perspective. Ignoring eternity. It's like us trying to block the sun with our hands, but then saying that the sun doesn't exist. This life, eternity. Some of you here today are not yet followers of Jesus, and so you don't need to figure out how to use your money for eternity yet. You need to figure out how to live your life for eternity. Because after you die, your soul will live on either in heaven or hell. And because of our inherent greed, we all have it, our materialism, our selfishness, all of our other sins, every single person here is justly deserving of hell. We have a debt that we cannot pay, that cannot be reduced, we cannot cancel it on our own. But because of Jesus... Because of Jesus, because Jesus came and paid our debt on the cross, we can be saved. Like we sang earlier, Jesus paid it all. And now, because he has risen, he has secured eternal life for all his followers. Eternity will happen. The question is, are you ready to face it? If not, you need to get right with God today. You don't know when you're going to enter this eternity. It could be today. 
But if you become a friend of God now, He'll welcome you into eternal dwellings with you. That is the only true security you will ever find in this life. Money can't give it to you. Stuff you buy can't give it to you. Insurance policies cannot give it to you. Friends can't give you security. Only God can. Only God. So run to Him today. We'd love to talk with you what it involves, what it means to do this. You got questions. But nothing is more important than your eternal destiny. For those who already are disciples of Jesus here, you might think, well, what does this look like? What is living our life now? With a view of that, what does that look like in our lives? What does it mean? I, I, I get it. Eternity is vital. Right? But how do I use my wealth for eternal purposes? Well, there's many possible ways, many answers to this. But, I mean, being generous and giving wealth away are usually good things to do. We see that in Scripture all the time. But notice here that Jesus' instructions are much more nuanced than that. He doesn't say... Just get rid of all your money. That's not a solution. That's not what he says. He does say, use your wealth with eternity in mind. Okay? Sometimes that means giving it away. Sometimes through charity or missions or tithing. Other times it more appropriately means just buying the right things. Not, or not buying certain things. Other times it means looking after your family in a responsible way. Or selling some of your stuff in order to have something to give. Or using your possessions that you own, like your home or your vehicle, in godly ways. You know, using them to serve others. Be hospitable, loving people with what you have. Jesus sums up many of these ideas with one principle as he continues. Read with me. Verse 9, he says, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Verse 10, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? You get what he's saying here? This, this is the message he wants us to understand. We must wisely use our wealth for eternal purposes, which requires being faithful stewards of whatever we have. Using our wealth wisely for eternity means being faithful stewards of whatever we have. I'm not going to go into a ton of depth on this, as we've seen this a lot lately in Luke. Remember Luke 12, the parable of the faithful and unfaithful stewards? Faithful stewardship is definitely a key component to Christian discipleship. We have to learn how to be faithful stewards. But what's the big thing to remember about stewards? If you've been with us lately, what's the key thing? Well, stewards are entrusted to take care of something by someone else. 
They're hired to do a job, whether that be money or land or possessions or houses, whatever the case may be. They're entrusted to take care of something by someone else. But stewards don't own whatever they're looking after. That's the key thing. They are responsible for looking after whatever their master entrusts to them. But in a very real way, we are stewards of everything we quote-unquote own on earth. We don't actually own any of it. Ultimately or permanently. Everything we have is God's. Everything we own is God. He owns it all. And he entrusts us to it for a short time and says, here's something of mine. Steward it wisely. So, your money is God's. Your stocks or bonds or policies are God's. Your living arrangements are God's. Your mode of transportation is God's. Everything in your home, your television and computers and phones and furniture and tools and toys are God's. And by the way, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. When you get to heaven one day, God's not going to ask you, how did you use your money? How will you respond when God asks you the question, how did you use my money? That changes everything, doesn't it? How did you use my money that I entrusted to you? Or how did you use my house that I had you house sit? How did you use my car that I loaned to you? The message from Luke 16 is that the more faithful we are now with what we have, the more will be entrusted to us in eternity. The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Notice here that it doesn't really matter if you think you're rich or poor. It's not the issue. If you've got $10 million to your name, be faithful with that. Or on the other hand, if you've got $10 to your name, be faithful with that $10. The amount... Or the quantity of our wealth is not the issue. Our faithfulness with it is. Also notice that no matter how much we have now, Jesus says it's really very little. Verse 10. said, one is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth now... Who will entrust you the true riches? So what we have now aren't even considered true riches. Think about that. They're not riches. Everything we can accumulate now is a shadow. It will pale 
compared to what's in store. So what, is it, what does it mean to be faithful with our wealth? I think it definitely requires some thought, some reflection, and then effort. You have to think through. Think through your use of money. How much of your money is given back to God? Thankfulness for what he's given you. What are you teaching your kids about how to use money? What are you exemplifying for them? Do you, really practically, do you spend more on cable or charity? Phone plans or people? You give more to coffee shops or to church? Movies or missions? You also have to think through your use of the rest of what you own, too, the rest of your mammon. Are you stingy about other people using your things? Do you ever open your home up to other people, especially those in need? Do you use your stuff to serve? Again, the point is not to guilt trip you. To make you evaluate things. Really look at them. Consider them. God doesn't love a begrudging giver. Because he loves a cheerful giver. And I also say these things, not to guilt trip you, but to show you a better way. Okay? When you invest your wealth in temporary pleasures, it is spent. It's gone. But when you invest in eternity, Jesus says it all comes back a hundredfold. It's not trying to deprive us. He's showing us a better way. Your life is short, and you can't take anything with you when you die. Hearses don't have trailer hitches. But like I said a while ago, while you can't take your wealth with you, you can send it on ahead. When it comes right down to it, Jesus is saying, use your wealth right or lose it. Use it right or lose it. Like, like the dishonest manager found out, there will be a day of reckoning. When we're held to account, there will be a full audit of our stewardship. We will give an account, so use it right or lose it. Now, after all this has been said, you might still have a pretty big question. And that is, why is all this about wealth so important to Jesus? Like, really, it's only money and stuff, right? You're right. It is only money and stuff. So why is it important to Jesus? Well, I think it's because we tend to make our money and stuff much more than that. We tend to elevate it. Our mammon has a way of captivating our hearts and obsessing our minds. 
And Jesus makes this very point as he concludes in verse 13. He says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Quite the familiar verse, but it answers the question, why is this so important? Because we must, use our, we must wisely use our wealth for eternal purposes because our wealth inevitably competes with our devotion to God. We must wisely use our wealth because it tends to compete with our devotion to God. It always does. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is a sobering ending, which really reveals two distinct approaches we have towards wealth. Wealth will either be our servant, as it should, or it will be our master. Money will either be a tool for good, or it will be a tool to enslave us. Wealth makes an excellent servant. It makes a horrible God. It is good to use what God gives you. Don't waste it. Don't just burn it. Don't just throw it away. Use it. Okay, Use it well. But if we don't use it right, it will inevitably begin to use us. Jesus says it's actually impossible to have it both ways. No servant can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Not shall not, cannot. Okay? Philip Ryken warns, there is no middle ground here. We would prefer to do the very thing Jesus tells us we cannot do, serve God and money. If, we, if only we could serve God with some of our money and then serve ourselves with the rest of it, better yet, If only we could use most of it for ourselves and then give God whatever's left. But Jesus says we have to choose. Our hearts have the capacity for only one dominating love. This affection and this affection alone is what we will serve. If we serve and worship God as our only master, money will inevitably become a tool for good. But if we serve and worship money as our master, then our love for God will inevitably dim. When you love one master, you'll begin to despise the other because they make competing claims on your life. So how do you make sure that money isn't your Well, I'm convinced that we will not break the grip that wealth has on us and our hearts unless we let our hearts be captivated by a greater affection. If you love God and you worship God and seek to serve God first and foremost in your life, then God becomes rightfully the most important thing in your life. 
You worship him. And our money and possessions have no choice but to take a back seat, to, to go down in our priorities, become lesser priorities. And, but when we are captivated by the way that God loves us, by the way God gives to us, by the way God serves us, by the way Jesus gave his life for us, by the way, by what's in store for us, when we're captivated by those things, then using our wealth for eternity is no longer a burden or obligation. It becomes a joy because we want to love God. We want to serve him with everything we have. And we can get excited that, if you think about it, it's crazy that our measly little offerings, service, or wealth, can make a difference in the grand scheme, cosmic scheme of eternity. What a privilege. Throughout all of this, we have to keep the gospel at the forefront of our minds. Because when it, when it comes right down to it, none of us are entirely, entirely faithful stewards. You're not, neither am I. We have never been wholly devoted servants of God, our rightful master. But we have a God. We have a God who became like a servant for us. He was rich, but made himself poor. He was the perfectly devoted servant the most faithful steward, inconceivably generous to us. Also that we could be made like him and become faithful and devoted and generous ourselves because of Christ's reputation, not ours. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. May that grace captivate our affections above all else in life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that that you would burn eternity onto our eyelids. Branded there, help us to see nothing but what you have done for us and what you have in store. Our hearts are so split apart, God, divided. We pray that you would unify our hearts and give us a holy devotion, a sacred ambition for you and your glory above everything else. Help that to shape our thoughts. Help that to shape our attitudes and the way we serve, the way we give, the way we love others. May your grace captivate us above our life. In Jesus' name.